stay at home and protect lives. That's the clear warning from the health secretary, Matt Hancock, who says it's not a request, but an instruction. I folks, quick update for me on the campaign against coronavirus. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. Finding faster ways to test people who may have the virus. After almost three months, all non-essential shops in England, including clothing retailers and department stores, can reopen today if they stick to strict safety measures. Hello and welcome to Corona Chronicles, where in the coming weeks we will attempt to touch base with a wide range of people from all walks of life to talk about how the current situation is impacting them both professionally and personally, as well as offering a cup full of cheer, some top tips and stats, and most importantly to touch virtual base with a cheery hello. And without the need for hand sanitizer, I'm Nick Randall. Tomorrow I'm presenting at the M&M meeting, and the mortality in intensive care now is immense. We look at data for the last six weeks. We had 160 patients, 80 died, and the rest is going to the wards. That's consistent with national data. Being in intensive care and being intubated and on the ventilator, it carries a very, very bad prognosis. We're still learning this disease process. A number of post-lockdown dramas have been produced since COVID-19 reared its ugly head, one of which we featured in the recent edition, and all reflecting how coronavirus has impacted our day-to-day lives. However, as truth is so often more powerful than fiction, an ingenious new project combining the two is now in production, dramatising real stories of real frontline NHS staff. The result, Unmasked, gets its first release in podcast form in early July. And Serena Hayworth, Senior Consultant Paediatrician at St George's Hospital in Tooting, who is the show's creator and producer, as well as Torchwood Doctor Who scriptwriter and also a previous guest from our SNS parent strand, Joe Lidster, both join me now. Uh, firstly, welcome to the show. Let's start with you, Serena. This is such a brilliant concept. I mean, offering us authentic voices from the front line and not only doctors and nurses, but patients, porters, cleaners, security staff and more. How early in the crisis did it hit upon you, this idea? Hi. Uh, it was around about just as we were at the peak, um, just after the Easter weekend, and it was working as a medical examiner, which is what I'm doing in addition to being a paediatrician, which is essentially supporting junior doctors to write death certificates and talking to the bereaved, which which clearly was just such a huge part of what everybody's been following on the news. Um, and uh, St George's Hospital was was one of the busiest hospitals and it was designated as as one of the intensive care units. Um, So as a writer, I've always got half an ear open for dialogue. And uh, one of our intensive care doctors came in after a night shift, tired. Um, He's he's a a very straightforward guy. He's uh, a a fantastic clinician, doesn't doesn't mince his words um, and was very clear about how tough it was, um, how everybody was learning on the job. But yet there were words uh, that I hadn't heard before in terms of the way that things were were being done and just the human impact of what was happening right there, right now. And it felt like a monologue. It felt like a monologue. And I thought, well, we've seen uh, doctors from Italy being interviewed. We were seeing newspaper articles. 
but we weren't really hearing the really uh, deep-seated emotional impact that was having on the staff, sure. the patients. And as I was walking out the door, thinking about this, I walked past um, one of our cleaners and he was cleaning the, the door handle of, a, of an office that gets used a lot. And he was saying under his breath, this is very important, this is very important. Mm. And I realised that without the cleaners, you don't have the intensive care units. And then I realised that being in a big hospital, it's like a beehive. Everything connects together, everybody connects together. And I just wanted to hear all the stories right there, right now. And I thought, what better way than to, to do it other than to to write it, to, to hear what people are saying, mm. but to give it that extra bit of magic, which is what directors and actors bring to it. Um, so you interviewed all these people. I mean, how confident were you that they all were happy to share their sometimes harrowing stories? I mean, did some people take some time to be persuaded? Do you know what? Not at all. Um, uh, partly, I know uh, I know a few of them because I work with oh. them. Some are just to say hello to. Um, a lot are connected with uh, Nigel, who's the lead medical examiner. Um, and um, people really, really wanted to tell their stories. Um Two things that struck me is one is that uh, partly because I'm a, a doctor supporter with the British Medical Association. So I'm very used to, to talking to people who have been through awful, terrible situations. Mm. Um, so I hope that I'm a, a safe, a safe pair of ears, I guess, sure. for people to listen and, and, and how therapeutic it is to listen, um, how therapeutic it is for people to talk mm. But the other thing is just how open and honest people were and how they wanted to say what they what they needed to say. And it was the original question that I had when I started was, so what did you do last night? Because it was mostly people coming off night shifts and, and, and then it sort of adapted. But since we set up the social media for the project, the interviewees are starting to follow us. And then, of course, you can see their um, social media um, pages. And what's so interesting is I would say, right, this nurse educator, palliative care nurse, her story, so writing her story, is her dedication to the uh, the procedure of supporting the families in the most compassionate and equal way possible. But her deep-seated desire to escape to the sea in the north of Ireland, where she's from. And sure enough, on her Facebook page, there's a picture of her at the seaside um, in Ireland. And uh, and our mortuary assistant talked about sitting in the in the garden with a glass of wine, reflecting on his day with his dog, uh, his dog <laughs> called called Maxie Priest. <laughs> and and sure, sure enough, Maxie Priest is on his Facebook page. So we've sort of really sort of got to know these people, but just how honest they were just in their interviews about who they truly are. <laughs> We love him. He loves other dogs. He tolerates us totally. So tonight I kiss my boy, play with him a little bit, give him his dinner, give him his chicken foot, then give him cuddles and then sardine and clean his teeth with a vibrating toothbrush. Then I research. Tomorrow I'm presenting at the M&M meeting and the mortality in intensive care now is immense. We look at data for the last six weeks. We had 160 patients, 80 died, and the rest is going to the wards. That's consistent with national data. Being in intensive care and being intubated and on the ventilator, it carries a very, very bad prognosis. We're still learning this disease process. 
I'm an intensive care consultant since 2002 at St. George's, so I'm very senior. I'm also a cardiac anesthetist, and my work's been converted to totally intensive care, which I like. I like. I like coming to work. I like coming to work before COVID. And I still think that there is a sense of purpose for us, and coming to work is better than sitting at home. That's why I feel sorry for people who are alone, or even with their families, they are stuck. I think it's a great privilege. Were there any stories that, um, even from your seasoned background in the NHS, that shocked you or or upset you? And was there anything you had to sort of scale down a bit? In terms of shocking, um, there were several interviews where I was finding it hard to not shed a tear. Sure. Um, that we had a, a box of tissues and used them. And, and again, writing them, then you go through it again. And, and so the, the process was interviewing, then transcribing, then writing. And each time hearing the same story just hit so hard. The thing that struck me particularly was how the families were, how the patients were on their own. Um, and we talked to an intensive care doctor who picks up the patients from uh, district general hospitals and brings them to the intensive care unit. And he talked about how they'd be chatting. They'd be talking to the families on the phone saying, I, well, I'm off to intensive care unit now. They're, they're going to help me with my breathing. Um, and then that would be the last thing that they would say because they would be battling with dropping oxygen levels in their blood, needing support. And then unfortunately, because right at the beginning, people were exceptionally ill. That was the last that they said. And the bewilderment of the staff talking to the families, um, the families not being able to see their loved ones after they passed away in the funeral homes um, was just it was just everyone was just stunned. Um, and the other thing that, that struck and just made me catch my breath was the intensive care units are used to people who are quite elderly, quite unwell. And there was a lot of people from the black ethnic minority uh, uh, communities who were very young. And, and this is what's coming out in the news a lot. Sure. Young black men, particularly. And for about around about 40 percent or, or even higher, uh, uh, the, the staff at St. George's are from the huge, hugely diverse background. And this is their communities being directly affected yes. and also their colleagues being directly affected. And I was very keen to interview our cleaners um, and Maureen, who is just so positive, despite everything that's happened, knew personally two of the, the colleagues that had died. And oh, again, we just awful. had this moment of just thinking about how fast it had all happened and, and how shocking that was. But yet how optimistic and positive uh, Maureen was and how positive people were. It, it's still it's such a huge impact and it's going to be impact for a long, long time. So, Joe, let's bring you in on this now. Uh, when did you get the call to be one half of this writing team? I don't know. I've got no concept of time. Well, you know. I think like a lot of us. Um, she <laughs> called me a month or so ago and asked if it'd be something I'd be interested in doing. And I'm actually one of the lucky stroke unlucky people, and I'm actually very busy with work at the moment. Mm. But, um, you know, as a writer, I'm always on the lookout for things that – will interest me or, you know, to get involved with and sort of actually dispassionately taking out that this is all real. It's an interesting project in itself. But also what I found was I 
I feel that, you know, this lockdown has been obviously psychologically hard, very hard for all of us. And we all have our own stories about how we've dealt with it and individual stories of people's mental health and so on. But actually, the, the way I think the majority of us have got through it is by kind of blocking out why we're actually doing it. Mm. So we've been thinking about how we cope with the lockdown and not actually, you know, we see the death figures every day and it's horrible, but we don't quite uh, put that into actual deaths. You know, sure. we don't have to think about it. Because I think psychologically we wouldn't be able to cope with what we're all going through if while we were going through it, we were thinking about actually what is the horror of what is happening in our hospitals at the moment mm. and to so many families. And so I was just very interested to be involved just because I think now we're sort of hopefully slowly moving towards a slightly new normal. It's a bit more slightly like the old normal. Mm. Um, now's the time really very much for us to, to know what, these doctors and nurses and cleaners and porters and and in one case a patient um, for us to know what they've been doing and it's just yeah it's they're heartbreaking stories but they're, they're me and Serena without discussing it actually separately both came up with that actually what these stories are about is hope mm. and every everybody we've interviewed at some point or other during their interview has hope. Was it harder for you, like not being part of the NHS, to to hear some of these stories? Because I mean, it's all very well us making up dramas, but when it comes from uh, from a very real place, did did it sort of uh, take you by surprise? Um, yeah, t- two or three of them did. I mean, I was sort of shocked by how many of them, how many of them, the interviewees, how many of them were um, coping so well. Yeah. Um, you know, they're all very very strong people. There are a couple of them where it was, there's one guy in particular and you just think, gosh, you're shell-shocked. You're actually shell-shocked by what you've been through. He's quite young. And that's something, again, I don't think we've been thinking about. I don't think we've been thinking about the actual effects on these people who deal with death regularly. Yeah. Um, but not to this scale. Not to, uh, you know, a couple of them say, they talk about how they've gone from however many deaths they would face in a week to suddenly how many deaths they're facing in a day. Mm. And as Serena said earlier about dealing with families, not being able to see them, these people being lonely, you know, scared, terrified. And the the fact that in many, really in all cases, you know, these people we're interviewing often are the last people that a lot of people saw before they sadly died. You know, they didn't get to speak to their families um, and just... The, the magnitude that that has on people. Um, so yeah, a couple of them did make me cry a lot, but even then there's hope, you know, and yeah, I kind of just, you know, I think we've interviewed 17, 18 people and I kind of really just want to buy them all a drink. Oh, um, because you, I just think they are, the one thing they, none of them think is that they're heroes. None of them, none of them th- feel that they've been brave, but when you actually, hear what they're going through and what they've done and how they're still going it's just you know it's quite awe-inspiring really 
let's talk about the uh, actual sort of nuts and bolts of putting this together. I mean, presumably you had meetings uh, on Zoom, etc. I mean, how did you decide who was going to adapt which uh, story, for example? I tried to distribute them so that the sort of emotional tone was spread evenly between us. Um, I'm just trying to think of how I decided. There were some people I just thought, Joe is going to completely nail this one. It's, he's just, Joe is, is um, he knows he's one of my favourite writers because he he makes it look so damn easy. He's very annoying because he's brilliant. And what he does is he nails emotional subtlety as well as story, which which is a fantastic trick if you can pull that off <laughs> in combination. So, um I gave him uh, the scripts where I knew that he would bring out all of the all of the the tones and the contrasts. Um, we both have slightly different skill sets. I do a lot of um, dark comedy drama, so there were some of the ones particularly where the dialogue was funny, um, mm. mostly intentional. Sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, uh, there's one one of our um, interviewees who is absolutely passionate about her job and she's an amazing senior intensivist um and i I don't think she'd mind me saying but her uh passion for her corgi almost matches it and uh (laughs) so rufus there's a big big theme of dogs throughout the whole podcast but her love and and the care that she takes of her dog and just the dialogue that she used, I rather selfishly snaffled that one, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So you said you, you, you've done a lot of other writing, but I mean, I'm, I'm reading here, senior consultant paediatrician. I mean, what do you do in your spare time, Serene? Oh, I'm just, I'm just uh, sort of looking at the, my, my, the wounds on my hand from cooking. I've ah. just been making a ratatouille for my, for my boys. Um, and uh, no, I've got a greyhound, so I am going to talk about dogs again. So I'm a greyhound. <laughs> That I walk. Greyhounds are remarkably lazy dogs. They uh, have a burst of energy in the morning, then they sleep the whole day. So I'm a dog <laughs> after my own, my own heart. I don't know. I I, I guess it's um, there's always that thing about if you want to get things done, ask a busy person. Mm. And um, I think that's the same for for my colleagues uh, as well. And um, I, I'm one of these people that likes seeing connections between things. So um, doing paediatrics connects me very much with the community. I'm also what's called the guardian of safe working hours, which um, was a job that arose after the, the junior doctor's strike a, a few years back to make sure that our junior doctors in training get the right conditions, training and pay. Mm. Um, and that's what struck me throughout this whole thing as well, is how the junior doctors threw themselves into this crisis, like you will not believe, right from the time it was happening in Italy, people were, were cancelling all of their annual leave. And it's a massive problem now because there's a lot of doctors who need to take leave. <laughs> um, but they were volunteering, people were coming in from from everywhere, um, and I'm going to be honest and say they didn't look after themselves, a lot of them. And uh, we do interview a junior doctor who is just the most open and honest um, guy. But I think he was quite wiped out by this. Um, sure. I need, need to, 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 I will check in with Toby if you're listening to this. I, you know, mm-hmm. I will check in on you again. Um, <laughs> Hello, Toby. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, talking Toby. about, um, just, just talking about the names as well. I mean, obviously, presumably, yeah. were, were names changed to protect the innocence and all the rest of it? Or, or uh, mm-hmm. is it actually these people? These are these, are these people. They are um, happy to have their names uh, used after a, a, a little gentle <laughs> persuasion. 
again, not through feeling that they'd said anything controversial or, or it just because they were actually quite humble. Mm. And again, it's that, that doing the, the difference between doing a documentary and doing a drama is that people can just talk at their own pace, at their own speed and, and, and leave it to the writers to, to find the story thread throughout it. Mm. And it means, again, with a documentary, as, you know, you, you have a second take and then you lose the sort of emotional push of what people sure. are saying. Um, yeah, I think mm. a couple of, we, we always made sure the scripts always go back to the interview to make sure that they're happy and happy in a few little, few gentle edits. But Ben, our amazing security guy who, um, he talks about having more rabbit than Sainsbury. Uh. Very funny guy. Um, he said, oh, this is, this is me. He said, this is me. He said, just with a bit more punctuation. Um, <laughs> and again, our chief medical officer, he, um, he spoke for five and a half pages. And uh, as I told him, and he said, and I, I said, I'm afraid I did have to edit you a little. And, and again, he said, this is a very strange, slightly surreal experience of seeing yes. yourself. <laughs> now, and, and I'm going to be completely honest. He's in episode six, which is the um, overview, because it's a sort of as the time runs from the peak through to this uh, this time where we are slowing down a little bit and looking forward, hopefully, to things being much, much better, but also very mindful that there might be a second wave perhaps in the autumn. My colleagues, uh, uh, Joe and uh, Neil, decided it was a good idea to interview me as well. So I, oh, I, am, I am one of the people. So That's it's great. rather meta. <laughs> It's interesting what you what you say, and I think we, we I'm in agreement with you. But Joe is very good at you're very good, Joe, at uh, tapping into that emotional side. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what 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 would you say would be your particular favourite uh, episode, Joe, that you've worked on, without giving too many spoilers? It's difficult to talk about favourites because they're real people. Sure. Um, Serena interviewed a patient, for example, Mark, and he's lost two months of his life. Um, you know, he's, he's a, I was driving back from somewhere, I don't know where, and I felt a bit out of breath. And I said to my wife, I went, Sylve, I feel a bit out of breath. And so she drove me to the hospital and, uh, yeah, then I woke up and yeah, I haven't seen her in two months and he hasn't, you know, he, everything he remembers is what he was told by the nurses about how he was fighting them off, how he thought there was a conspiracy to kill him because that's how terrifying it was. Um, Because they kept putting masks on him and things like that, and he was fighting them off. But again, he's just so funny because he just talks about things like, I mean, they tell me all this stuff, and I don't believe a word of it, these nurses. (laughs) They all lie. And he's brilliant, and he's so full of life, and that really... But you know what I think? I just think it's it's the fact that you're not patronising anybody because you're not making a drama yeah. where you think, oh, so-and-so would say that because they're that sort of person. You, there's no there's no issue with that at all. This is all stripped back, real people, but just obviously packaged with actors. Yeah, and what's actually interesting for me is, um, you know, again, slightly dispassionately as a writer, taking myself out of that this is real, mm. um, what was interesting for me was... So, for example, one of the guys is an ex-soldier and he talks a lot about he uses a lot of military terms, military, you know, dialogue. So he says, you know, I arrive at 0900 hours and, da, 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 and da, da. he talks like that. But he also talks about his kids and that my job was to sort of go, right, what's the story here? So what I did was moved all the kids stuff to the end. So you got to know him as the work person and then you got to know his real, real life person. Mm. But this guy who is this ex-soldier who is... Um, very precise about how he speaks and everything. When he starts talking about his kids and going to a park with them, he turns into a poet. Like, 
I think when people listen to these, they might think me and Serena have occasionally enhanced yeah. what people are saying because they might not believe that this guy who's this soldier would then suddenly start talking about the colours on trees and about butterflies and things. <laughs> but they suddenly, all of them, all of them get to this poeticness. And I think that's maybe part of the cathartic, hopefully cathartic experience for them is they're getting to sort of say things that they might not say to their families yeah. and things they might not say to their friends, you know, I'm going to say things that you'd say in the pub to your mates that you would, you wouldn't go actually that day, the sun just felt so beautiful and blah, blah, blah. You wouldn't yeah. say that to a mate. And I think what Serena's done brilliantly is, and you, you know, I wish people could hear the interviews. Serena makes a <laughs> noise all the way through. She's, <laughs> she's always listening to them and encourages them to, to delve that bit deeper Aww. and talk about poetic stuff and how they are actually feeling. And yeah. and that's just gorgeous to sort of write, you know, to, to then take those words and just maybe move them around a little bit. Um, so yeah, no, it's, I, I couldn't choose a favorite. They are, every single one of them is different, but every single one of them is full of hope, no matter what they've been through. They are, every single one of them has a great sense of humor. You know, I think that must be a, a, a medical thing, I think. To be a doctor or a nurse or a patient or whatever, you have to have a good sense of humour. The team creating the podcast, all the, the actors and everything, are all donating their time free, apparently, to raise money for, I think, it's St George's Hospital Charity. Is that right, uh, Serena? That's that's right. Um, the people are incredibly generous. This is the St George's Charity and also the Actors Benevolent Fund, because when I first started thinking about this, there was half of my uh, friends are medical and were going to work, and half of my friends are actors going, I don't know if I'm going to, to find enough money to, to, to eat. Um, and it was a really, really scary time at that the beginning. At the beginning. But the, the St George's Charity have, have been supportive of this project, but they are... The generosity of people to the NHS has been astounding and people have been donating things like uh, bath bombs from a famous, uh, beautifully smelling bath bomb company. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed, allowed Other to say... Other bath bomb companies are available. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. The sort of one that when you come into Waterloo Station, you can't miss it. So that, yes. that one. And... Um, and one company donated, I think it was 750 pairs of shoes, mm. um, new new shoes. And uh, people are so pleased with their shoes. <laughs> Just fundamentally lovely, generous gifts. Mm. And, and so um, asking to people donate, to donate will continue that thread going through for, uh, you know, people who have given up so much. And, and that was a, a big theme again throughout the whole of the podcast is, just the sacrifices people made and, and some of it didn't even make it onto it one of the one of our intensivists actually lived separately from his family for two weeks because he was scared about uh, uh, infecting the family um one of our nurses talks about um, not being able to hug her children and at the beginning when uh, we were just learning about it there weren't uh, the rest spaces for doctors with the pictures that we got out of china of uh, doctors and nurses sleeping on floors and shelves and all sorts of I bought pillows. I just bought everything closed. I ran out to to Primark. Other shops are available and <laughs> Wilco, and bought duvet covers and throws and put chairs together to make tiny beds. Slightly, um, slightly. I could took pictures and put it on my Facebook page. It's like 
what you were you're kind of hoping that you're going to get to rest on actually what i managed to put together in five minutes <laughs> um so it's just fundamental stuff like sleeping and eating and shoes and, sure. and that's one of those that makes the massive difference so if people oh. are, are able to donate that would yes be of huge, course huge always hugely appreciated Absolutely. and again that's a, a huge thread in the podcast people going there's so much chocolate we love it <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, it just sounds like this whole project is basked in a in a vast sea of love, which is just so wonderful. <laughs> um, to, to give us a little detail about just as we wrap up, how many episodes there are? Uh, when's it going to start? How do we hear it? Where do we hear it? Okay, so first episodes. Uh, there's six episodes. First episode is on, on the third of July. It will be on all the well-known podcast platforms. Um, so there's six episodes, and each episode has three NHS workers featured, except the one episode that has Mark, our wonderful patient, and they all have the themes. Um, so they're all in time. So it starts off from the peak. Uh, running through to two weeks ago uh, but they're grouped together by the intensivists uh, the bereavement team uh, the nursing team the support team etc so they've all got a, a theme and uh, yep each episode is half an hour and it's all put together so it's not a series of monologues it's edited together to tell a story told by three people in each episode So, Serena and Jolison, thank you so much. The very best of luck with this podcast. I am so looking forward to it. July the 3rd is when it starts. Everybody check it out. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. And our thanks again go to Serena, Joe, the rest of their podcast team, and most importantly, to all the people whose story they've told. And Unmasked can be followed on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Now, before we go, it's time for the latest world news relating to the pandemic, dated Sunday the 14th of June, as we're recording. Boris Johnson has said people should be able to shop with confidence when non-essential stores reopen in England tomorrow. Shoppers will have to observe social distancing, whilst many businesses are fitting perspex screens and limiting the numbers allowed on their premises. The Prime Minister also said he wouldn't cut England's two-metre social distancing rule unless the science said it was safe to do so. All shops in England selling what are called non-essential goods will be able to open. Uh, this includes retailers offering clothes, toys, books and electronics, as well as record shops, tailors, auction houses, photography studios and indoor markets. Iran has reported more than 100 coronavirus deaths in a single day for the first time in two months. Officials say that the rise is explained by an increase in testing. India is to convert another 500 railway carriages to create 8,000 more beds for coronavirus patients in Delhi amid a surge in infections. Home Minister Amit Shah announced a package of new emergency measures for the capital, including a rapid increase in testing for COVID-19. Nursing homes will also be requisitioned. A leaked Public Health England draft cited racism as a possible factor in why people of such backgrounds are at an increased risk of dying of a virus. The review, the second by PHE, on the subject pointed to discrimination as a root cause affecting health and the risk of both exposure to the virus and becoming seriously ill as a result of it. 
It's found that historic racism might mean that people were less likely to seek care or demand better personal protective equipment, whilst other potential factors included risks linked to occupation and inequalities in conditions such as diabetes. And finally, from yesterday, in England, single adults living alone or single parents with children under 18 can form an exclusive support bubble with one other household. The second household can be of any size, but nobody who is shielding should join the bubble. People in each bubble can visit each other's homes and go inside. They will not have to stay two metres apart and can stay overnight. It means, for example, that a single grandparent could pair up with one of their children's households. An adult living alone could mix with their parents or two single friends living apart could get together. If anyone in the bubble develops coronavirus symptoms, everyone in both households must self-isolate. But if you don't live on your own or with children under 18 only, then the rules haven't changed for you. And that's the latest news. Well, that's it for this edition. If you want to email us about anything at all, uh, the address is coronachronicleshow at gmail.com. Until next week, this is Nick Randall saying take care and look after yourselves. Goodbye. Oh, crash. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bit like Serena in that I'm a very sort of busy multitasking person and I'm making jam tarts <laughs> and I burnt myself so oh you, sweetheart you're, you're catching no swearing oh <laughs>